Sajiwa, Happy New Year. Happy New Year. It's uh, our our first indie scene of 2023. Can you believe it? I'm excited to talk about another Jean-Luc Godard film. I mean, we're we're practically becoming the uh, Godard series here. This is the fourth of his films that we've discussed. Maybe. Um, Yeah, because we've talked about, um, well, this is Contempt. We mm-hmm. talked about Breathless a couple months ago, Alphaville, I believe it was early last year or the year before, That's right. and then one of his more recent works, and I keep forgetting Goodbye the name. Goodbye to Language. Goodbye to Language. Yes, Goodbye yeah. to Language, yeah, from a few years ago. Um, yeah, so this is, yeah, it's a fascinating journey because the more I get into Godard, the more I understand what the big deal is. Good, um, good. So before we get into all of that, I mean, you're knee-deep in, in script writing. Uh, for your latest project. So give us an update on, on all things uh, with uh, Cosmic Disco Detective Renee. It's on the way. Um, I'm finishing it up. Hopefully over the next couple of days, it'll be done. And a lot of it, ha- I mean, a part of it has been shot. So we're about to shoot the dialogue scenes. I'm going to shave and look like a younger person for the movie. Um, not quite 100, more like 80. And... Uh, <laughs> And then I'm also taking notes on uh, five other scripts uh, that, you know, the six movies that I want to make this year. So uh, we'll see how that goes. I'm lightly planning a week-long run of uh, the Renee movie in California. So let's see how that goes. Possibly other cities. Um, Yeah, I've been tweeting about stuff. Lack of diversity in the New York film critics circle. That's one uh, one of the more recent subjects. So yeah, keeping busy in uh, Brooklyn. As soon as this new movie is done, it should be by hopefully end of February, early March. I'll send you a screener so we can discuss it. Definitely. Well, that's exciting stuff. I I do want before we pull over uh, before we talk contempt. I do want to pull over and ask about the New York uh, mm-hmm. Film Critics Circle because mm-hmm. um, that it's it's a very interesting quandary because you tweet out a photo. I don't, was there an article attached to it or was it just the photo of the group at like a recent, probably like a, an award celebration or something? Yeah, it was at a recent award uh, celebration. I, I never knew about the, you know, who's in the group. And I I just knew that it was a big group. Uh, there's maybe 46 people, no, 43 people, 43 writers, critics, and um only like six of them are visible ethnic uh, minorities, and uh, and for for New York that's very bizarre. I mean, in any group, uh, in in a, such a this is such a massive city with massive diversity, and film criticism is a highly sought after uh, gig. Lots of people are applying to it. Um, yeah, that photo was from a recent award ceremony. I guess my question is, what is the what do you see as the solution to that? I don't know exactly what the solution is. I think the critics group has to talk about what's going on because um, the critics group is formed through people who are hired by various publications. So it's not as, not as if uh, people in the group can say, oh, hey, we need more Black uh, film critics, we need more Asian film critics because we play all over the world. You know, a lot of people watch, you know, we want to get a different perspective on things, blah, blah, blah. It's a major city, et cetera. Uh, <clears throat> so they have to, I think, uh, on the other hand, 
you can join the uh, group unless someone in the group sponsors you. Uh, that's what I saw in their bylaws. So this is a big old timey problem that no one's really tried to solve, I think, because for decades, it was no big deal just to have all white pricks, right? Until people start saying, hey, why is it this way? Starting around the 80s, people start asking, maybe a little bit before that. You know, why is it, why do we not have minority talent in, uh, in these groups? So um, I think it's, it would have to be a long-term process. Um, they would have to start, maybe they could expand the coverage to include VOD and, and to, to more VOD because more films are being, uh, being uh, released on VOD. And, uh, and there should also be another problem I have with the group is there should also be regular coverage of New York City movies because hundreds get made by indie filmmakers and get released now in New York. And a lot of those are not covered because they're still going off of, you know, covering major Hollywood things and major uh, Netflix streaming type things, even though some of the minor indie stuff do get a lot of views now because, because of VOD and because of the web. I'm I'm trying to tie that back to, I guess, the ethnic racial makeup of the group itself. Yeah, they uh, could hire more. I mean, they could tell publications to hire more diverse writers to uh, to start off with covering a lot of the international movies that become available. Um, so there could be African movies, Asian movies, African-American movies. There could also be just writing about mainstream content uh, by diverse writers. They'll bring an interesting perspective into it. Well, I mean, I, I don't disagree. I'm just trying to figure out, because I'm, I'm chasing this down like mentally. I don't mm -hmm. know that it's a case of, you know, big R racism, like a deliberate, I mean, because no right. mainstream organization now is going to, I'm going to say cop to being racist, much less probably actually be racist. No, no, no. The, the, right? uh, I know some of the people who are in the group. They're not racist. They're not, uh, you know, they're not, they're talented writers. They belong in the group, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But uh, this is due to, you know, sort of decades of not dealing with uh, the idea that there should be more diversity in various groups. Now, this is not the only critics group that has the problem. This is across the board. Yeah. I, read, I did some research, less than 80, less than 20% diversity among film critics and the Hollywood Foreign Press Association recently got in trouble with the media for having no black critics in their group. Um, so this is a, you know, this is a problem that goes a long time. So it'll probably take a long time to fix. But I personally, as a consumer who lives in New York, and who uh, who uh, consumes criticism and who makes movies and releases movies, I, I would be more interested in seeing more minority writers in the group. But that's well, just I, I guess who are some of your favorite like minority you know critics out there? People you would endorse to get into these organizations? Well, I don't know who's. So it depends on their uh, you know their writing. Depends on who's in New York, right? Depends on what the rules are. Now, I think that rule, being physically located in New York, might also need to change because since since we're in the post-COVID era, people can live anywhere, watch movies online, and report to a uh, 
publication that's based in New York and I think could belong to a group that's in New York. They say uh, the the uh, New York Film Critics Circle say that uh, they have three members who are like that, who are not really based in New York, but nevertheless- New York City or New York State? New York State, who are not even, who are okay. not, I mean, uh, yeah. The, the, the group might be initially for many decades may have been really uh, limited to just people in New York City area. Yeah. So now they have at least three members, they say, that are not even living in the East Coast or are in the West Coast, but are, but are still members of the group. I'd have to do, you know, without, you know, excluding people, I'd have to look at who is around. I know a few people who also this, this is also a, there are some members in the group who do want and have been camp campaigning for additional diversity and who've tried to get people in. So there's a sort of an in-progress politics things happening. Uh, so I don't want to comment on any names because uh, the, these changes that I'm talking about might already be in progress. So yeah. we may hear something soon. Um, but but uh, the point is, there is a lot of diversity in film, film writing, both in New York and both and also U.S. wide. And uh, I don't think it, it needs to be limited to uh, writers who actually live in New York. Well, I mean, that's the that's the thing. That's the prerogative of the organization, right? I mean, because honestly, if they say, well, it can be anybody, then you don't need to call it the New York Film Critics Association or whatever it is. No, there. I think initially they <laughs> were formed to cover. Back in the theatrical days, 1935, without before television, before home video, to cover right. movies that came out in uh, in New York, right? So the New York audiences can watch it. But now, in 2023, New York City audiences can can and do watch things on video on demand that come out from all over the place. It doesn't. All right, but but I'm not talking. I I understand. You know, maybe how it was found out. But if you talk right. about the identities of various critics groups. It doesn't make sense for him, for someone from Plano, Texas, to be a member of the Boston Film Critics Association mm -hmm. necessarily. Mm -hmm. You know, the Chicago Film Critics Association. You know, we have a geographic area. There have been some, from what I understand, concessions made to people who are just like outside the boundaries. But mm -hmm. I don't think we have anybody in like uh, Champaign-Urbana, you know, who's like three hours south of the city, who's part of the you know CFCA. Mm -hmm. So, well, uh, and, and, well, and, go ahead. Well, I was going to say the other. I mean, it's there's all sorts of ways you can pick this apart, right? Um, for example, you know, if it's relegated, if the New York Film Critics Circle, Circle I, I keep butchering the name. I'm sorry, right, right. But if their criteria are their members are made up of you know print or online recognized publications and their staff, then you're right. That does go back to a matter of who those staff are hiring mm -hmm. now. Is it a matter of are there minority ethnic critics who are applying to get these jobs and are being turned down? If yes. so, why? Is it because they don't meet the professional standards? Is it because of some kind of like latent racism? What is the reason there? Now okay. you have to you have to take this down, you know, downstream because if the New York film critics circle it yeah. doesn't have a diverse roster they may be doing everything they can to diversify. Not. Well, They're I mean, I, I guess, I don't know. I can't speak to that. Well, you said that there are, that there may be plans in place to change that. So yes. like, so what is, people, I mean, so what does that mean? So
Some people inside, well, here's the problem. This has not been dealt with in an overall organizational goal level in any critics association group in the well, country. That's, that's not true. I mean, the Chicago Film Critics Association, I can say, in the past several years has had, you know, outreach oh, mechanisms good. to bring in more diverse film critics. And so, as that happened, I don't know how many people are in it and what the, what the mix is. Yeah, I mean, it's a diverse group. It's not, you know, perhaps as diverse as some people might like, but that doesn't right. mean that we're not trying. But it also comes down to who's applying, who's getting turned down. You know, I don't know how many, you know, diverse minority ethnic film critics there are. I mean, I'm not I'm not saying it's a specifically white profession or whatever. I just don't know the numbers. I know? think uh, as far as um, historically, it's been mostly a white profession. I understand. Uh, I'm not talking about historically. I'm talking about now because we're on the same page. Right. Change. And Even maybe, now, it's mostly a white profession. Right. But I'm saying I don't know that that can be pegged on, you know, some kind of a systemic problem that exists now. Let's just say that it is a problem that has recently, you know, people have woken up to the idea that this needs to change. It may take time to find those critics. To well, there are the, Black Critics Associations. I, there might even be one in New York, so I'll have to look at that. So I'll do yeah. some more research and we'll revisit this issue because this could be a separate... But, uh, but, I, but so. what, I'm, what I'm trying to get at here is I think you just kind of hit the nail on the head. If there are groups of Black minority ethnic film critics out there who feel they aren't being represented by the, you know, the, the name brand recognized associations or whatever... They can form their own groups. I think that would be very interesting to see, you know, if those other groups stand up and take notice, if that's more of a push to, you know, do a better job of opening up the floodgates. Uh, I just, I just, I hesitate to say that a group needs to have a certain percentage of, you know, minority, ethnic, whatever you know, members, because that sounds like weirdly like quotas. And if That's they have, because we live in a racist society that has excluded minorities in the film industry for decades. So some kind of quotas, while things uh, until diverse, more diversity happens, is fine. Well, you know, but where you're talking about certain things like you know film criticism, right? Yeah, it's it's a weird thing to say. Hey, you're going to get in this organization now because we have a quota to fill. That's like, how does that? I mean, how is? But how is that? Well, but how is that supposed to make a film critic feel if they are being, if they are conspicuously being allowed into an organization? It's like, we need five black people. We need six Asians and three, you know. Who meet the, who meet the criteria also. Well, but that's the thing is, are they meeting the criteria? Are they not meeting the criteria? What are the criteria? You know, that's. Uh, listen, you seem really naive about how society works. So <laughs> I'll, I'll break down how film industry has worked in the U.S., right? From the beginning days. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about this. It's related. We're living in now moving forward because we've agreed that there is at least one organization that is working on this progress that you've mentioned. Yeah, okay, I, two I, organizations because the CFCA has done the same thing. Yeah, there's so, a, you know, there's I, under, a, I understand it's been historically difficult, but I'm talking yeah. about people trying to solve this problem now. What's the best way to go about it? I think just like throwing bodies at the problem until we get more qualified people is just kind of a weird thing. We already have qualified people. The group doesn't want to change so far. But, I mean, but here's the thing. What are, you, what are you basing that on? Of the group not I talked to people change? who are involved in critics groups, and they have said this is the internal dialogue. 
they've said that they don't want minority critics in the group. Uh, that is difficult to add minority groups. Uh, minority but group. that's a that's a different thing, though. It's, it's and and listen, Ian, if you're interested in this, do some research. I'll send you some links. If you want to not talk about contempt and go into this, we can have a full episode about it if you want. But uh, uh, there's two articles that I, that I posted that talk about why it's difficult to diversify critics groups. And okay, well, can you, well, can, you boil the, can you boil down the high-level points for me just real quick here? Uh, some people who, are in the, who have been in the job for decades, it's a job that once they get it, uh, you know, they don't want to let go or, you know, changing of the guard doesn't happen uh, a lot. When you say the job, are you talking about like staff positions at, at yeah. publications? Yeah. Okay, but this is outside the that's outside the purview of the critics groups, though. The critics groups are made up of people who are writing to various in various publications. Right, but I'm saying if there's uh, critics groups, don't tend to be exclusive in the way that a staff publishing job is. Like if you're if there are, you know, three writers at the L.A. Times, and you know you want to get a new writer in to be one of the top three writers, then yes, yeah, someone does have to be shoved out. But the, you know, a film critics group, they don't tend to have, well, we have to cap out at 64 people. So if someone wants to join, we have to, you know, someone has to give up their position of authority or privilege or whatever you want to call it. There might be a cap. I mean, there might be, uh, I don't know. I, uh, I have not been made aware of any critics groups that have caps like that. And, and uh, honestly, they are honest. They're constantly trying to expand hmm. and especially in recent years, expand with more diverse voices. Yeah, I'll have to check with uh, what they say on the website at NYFCC, because if there isn't a cap, then a lot of critics uh, have their own websites and they, they publish, you know, freelance. So they could easily expand, add 10, 15, 20 more critics who are doing good work, whose work is somehow tied to New York and, you know, make the uh, organization more diverse. Yeah. I, th I thought there was some limit from what I heard from a critic in another city who runs a group and from the two articles. I, I think there is some limit that's caused by uh, hiring at various publications. There's one critic who's white who runs a group in another city said, he he believes there are a lot of white uh, film critics who are not as good as some minority film critics that he knows, and he's been trying to expand his group. Uh, but he also wants to have people who write for some of the some of some of the major publications in the city in the group. So, well, uh, <clears throat> I want to clarify something. You said this person, their group is this a group? They're a part of a group they run. I think they help run it. And they're part and what, of it. Then what is preventing them from expanding it to include the minority writers that they want to include? They have. They've started expanding. Okay. But they said it. They said one of the problems, and this is the another article said this also. I assume that whatever group wants to be the most significant group in a city wants to include people from the big newspapers and the and the and the uh, and the big media outlets. So that if that is all you know made up of white writers, so you start with you know a significant amount of white writers, 
and then they are probably looking for ways to expand it. So in the future, maybe it'll be like, you know, 50 members in, in each group and uh, some representing just writers who write at, um, at websites. So <laughs> there hasn't really been a large push in New York to uh, come up with a solution. The, the other person that I talked to said that, you know, change in this area is super slow to happen. Not sure exactly why. I don't know why it can't be done fast, especially in the days of the internet, right? You, can, you see who's writing, who's relevant, and you make them members. Well, I mean, yeah, and that's that's a whole other, that's a almost a separate discussion because with my LA Times example, and, you know, I'm just using it as a, you know, generic big name publication. But one, one thing I said, one thing I should say, <laughs> we don't have an official explanation from NYCFF as to why the membership is not, you know, much more diverse. So this is just guessing based on things right. people said. So hopefully they'll make an official statement down the road. Same yeah. thing happened with the Hollywood uh, Foreign Press Association. Right. Well, okay. questions, then ultimately after many years, <laughs> they explained, yeah, we need to do a better job recruiting minority talent. Um, yeah, and the, the Hollywood Foreign Press, I think, is a separate situation. But as far yeah. as, well, I mean, but what, what I'm trying to get at is, they are a much like the uh, the New York situation. They are made. They're a body that is made up of representatives of different press outlets, right? Who set mm -hmm. their own policies in terms of who they hire and and what what they cover and all that business. So what I'm saying is, if you've got a publication that's a mainstream publication that has you know staff and a budget and all that stuff, not people who are typing for free or for you know very low pay on their own websites, which you know I'm not going to knock them because I am one. But um, some people do make money, a lot of money. Off right. Their but, but what I'm saying is, they are not necessarily going to have the same uh, you know name brand recognition yeah. as a Richard Corliss or even a you know Robert Daniels. Right. Uh, or a Richard Roper. So you've got kind of marquee names in film criticism at these big, big publications. Now, these writers are paid. They, you know, I'm assuming are paid well. They probably have, you know, other you know, film criticism is not necessarily the same lucrative business that it would, once might have been back in the day. But these publications have their budgets, right? Yeah, many so, New York film critics are paid really well. Well, okay, that's... I mean, people who are big names who've been at their publications. For right, but that's but that's still a small number of people right. compared to the number of New York working film critics. Yes, yes. Um, I can say the same thing. That was one of the big surprises to me when I joined the CFCA, you know, almost 10 years ago, mm -hmm. um, is how many of, you know, our group are doing it mostly out of passion and certainly not for the money. You know, a lot right. of folks have, you know, day jobs and psychics or their film hustle is, you know, writing for a billion different outlets a week. Yeah, same so, thing in New York, I think. Right. So my point is, it you know the LA. I'm, I keep using LA Times, <laughs> but if they want to diversify, that probably means you know knocking out one of the marquee names or finding some place in the ever shrinking budget of news publications to bring someone on. It's that, this hard is to on make. the publications end, right? Right. Right, but, then, but that but that that feeds back to the film critic uh right. but on the group end debate. yeah <laughs> but what i'm the... saying what i'm saying is if if this organization 
you know, or a film critics organization, if one of their rules is that they have yeah. members who are part of recognized, established, call it name brand publications that that's dependent big... that's dependent on the publications to provide that diverse talent if there is none. Now, in order to bring in that diverse talent, they have to find the money to bring in that diverse talent. Some that could mean bring in some, you know, even a a a blogger with a an established a medium established following mm -hmm. and saying here's a pittance, but you're going to have a byline at a huge publication. You can build your audience and all that stuff, and you'll be on the same, you know, critics roster or whatever as these three, you know, premier critics. I don't know if that's on anybody's mind because I don't know that anyone's going to take a chance on a blogger or whatever, a not well-known name because film criticism, as far as the paid lucrative thing is sort of a dying breed, especially because you've got bloggers and YouTubers. It's like, why am I going to go read this archaic, you know, film print? Like Pauline Kael has been dead for a long time. She was, you know, a highly respected film critic along with Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel and, and a lot of people whose time has kind of come and gone, we revere them, but we're not reading necessarily that kind of work today, at least not in the, the same numbers that puts them at the top of the heap culturally, right? Mm -hmm. But on the side of the organization, they may have li uh, limits in place, the critics group, limits in place right now <coughs> that say only critics who are getting paid through various publications, not solo critics who are Right, but that's phone. but that's well, that's what I'm saying, right? So, so that's that's a that's a se that's a separate problem. Yeah, the, the the film critic organization they can or cannot, depending on what kind of I'll call it standards they want to maintain. Like we are going to recognize only published, you know, big name outlets, or we have only done that in the past. Now we're going to recognize smaller outlets. That's certainly the case with the Chicago Film Critics Association. Uh, they opened their they expanded their membership about 10 years ago and that's you know one of the ways that i was able to get in that's a good way um, to get i don't think new yeah. york has done that right i think that's that's a good way to address it you know policy wise if they're looking to get more diverse voices because if the the what i'm trying to get at my long-winded way is let's just say there are you know 50 mainstream publications across the united states you know say one <laughs> i'll just say one for each state Right. That has a recognized publication that has three film critics on it, and you know most of them happen to be white because maybe they are all legacies who have been you know at yeah. it for decades, for and they're, decades, they're name yeah. brand recognized people that people, if to the extent that they follow film criticism, are going to pluck down their buck fifty for the new New York Times or whatever to read mm -hmm. whoever. Mm -hmm. You know that's not necessarily. I mean that that problem can be solved critics group wise by extending expanding to lesser known publications right. but the publications themselves if they want to diversify they will they may have to knock off a top tier critic and take a chance on bringing someone else in who's less established and i just don't know that the, you know maybe no one's made the case for that no. maybe they have made the case and been shot down and it's like if you're going to say let's take it to like a movie studio example you've got francis ford but, Coppola. No, no one's really arguing that people establishing people get fired they're saying expand it right but what i'm saying is this could it likely as most things in business come down to is budget mm -hmm. you know we've got three film critics we're paying we've got three film critics we're paying them 
$150,000 a year each to do what they do. Let's set aside another 50,000 to give it to some unestablished person. You know, that's kind of a tough sell in a shrinking industry. Well, on the chance that, that it might expand their readership. It all depends on the, you know, what's happening with each publication in New York. And New York publications are different than in other cities. Some do really well. Uh, some some have you know ways of being funded through parent companies. Um, some right, but that. even but even parent companies, you have to make the case. I need X money to support this unknown quantity that may or may not increase our bottom line, and especially in this economy. I just I'm not trying to say that I don't want diverse voices. I'm just saying that. The reason there aren't many diverse voices may come down to several factors that don't have to do with historical or present day prejudices or anything like that. It, it ultimately does tie into that. Well, I mean, in the sense that, yes, if we want to go by the example that all the mainstream established critics are white because they've been in this business for decades and there's not yeah. much room at the top, then sure. Yeah. But again, I'm talking about forward-facing, what are we going to do about it now? Yeah, I think the easier, since the focus is not, I mean, uh, publications diversifying, that's a, that's a secondary discussion. I think the primary discussion is uh, just me seeing how, I mean, also I should say, there's the concept of visible diversity and there's co concept of invisible diversity, right? There could be people who are, minorities or who identifies minorities who look white who are in that photo. So I know there's a guy, for, there's a Turkish background guy in there, there's an Indian background guy in there. So I'm just talking about visible diversity and that's an entirely different topic where, you know, people who look a certain way are affected through racist policies in the US because of the history of the country and the way the society is set up, blah, blah, blah. So if we want more if I'm, you know, if I'm making plan, making decisions for the critics group, and if we want more diversity, I think the easiest avenue to go is to look at who is writing, who is, uh, who are minority writers outside of the main publications, who are, you know, the same, the same way that your film uh, critics group did it, expand by looking at new talent, that that may not be writing for major publications. Yeah. Oh, or expanding the definition of what major publications means. You know, right. I'm right. sure there are, uh, you know, I'm trying to think of the best. I keep using the term black minority ethnic. It kind of, <laughs> kind of brings up, you know, stomach acid for me. Yeah, well, let's just say, I'm sure there are black and minority ethnic newspapers and news organizations in these major metropolitan cities. Maybe expand to include those as, you know, major reputable publications, assuming they have some kind of a, a film critic or arts beat, you know, right. component I mean, to it. There are black newspapers in New York. There are Asian newspapers. There's, you know, there's newspapers or websites targeting every demographic in New York. Yeah. So when this critics group was formed in 1935, I'm sure there was even some of that diversity already happening in New York. But, you know, they just focused on <coughs> publications reaching the white, you know, money paying majority because that's, uh, and that I'm sure has changed over the decades as civil rights and other changes have happened in America. So, <laughs> so the next generation of leadership at the NYCFF 
should look at it and and uh, come up with ways to expand uh, diversity because there could be it could be a great benefit. It could bring in new readers. It could help discover new talent in filmmaking and uh, film writing. You know, and it it won't look uh, shockingly old timey. <laughs> like when I saw that photo, I was like, "Whoa, are we in Norway? Is it some small town in Norway?" Well, I mean, that's that's kind of the other thing that makes me uncomfortable with this is like, yeah, it's a photograph of a bunch of white people, but just dismissing it as a photograph of a bunch of white people kind of disparages the people in that photo. No, who no, no. Are working very hard at their profession. That's and, not what I'm saying. Well, I understand, but it can come off that way. Right, right now, I'm not saying those people in there don't belong in there are not talented, blah, blah. Although <laughs> some people who are in, in the industry have argued some people do need to retire and make room and they're just not doing it. There's more talented people out there. Anyway. Well, yeah, I, but that's it, all that's all subjective. And that could come down well, to petty subjective. jealousy. Like, why, you know, why am I not in that group? Or, you know, that person should retire so someone quote unquote better could slide in. Maybe that yeah. better person is me. I yeah. mean, I just I see that I see these things all the time popping up on Twitter and, and social media, like this group isn't, you know, it's too white and this group isn't diverse enough. Yeah, that's a I good. Under, I understand that argument. Right. But I also, you know, it again, it just kind of rubs me the wrong way because it is kind of looking at skin color as a defining factor in a group. And as you mentioned, there is more to diversity than just what someone looks like. But skin color has been a big problem in the U.S. since the forming of the country using genocide that wiped out the natives. And they had to come up with two sets of societies for the immig white immigrants versus the natives plus the black africans and uh asians blah 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 latin americans <laughs> so skin color unfortunately in the world for the last 500 years skin color has been a big problem for non-white people because how colonialism organized using skin color i get it but i still don't think that calling out like hey there's too many white people in this photo or on this board or whatever that's not what i, I, mean, I said well, I mean, you kind of are by saying, hey, where's the where's the ethnic racial diversity in this group? Yeah, because the, it's con a, the it's converse a of that group. is that there are too many, you know, white people in this photo. Yeah, it's, it doesn't represent a lot of people that live in the city and are consumers of the media. There should be sure. more diversity in New York. I mean, I'm not talking about a small town that doesn't have a lot of diversity. Also, New York City is not even just an American city only, right? Uh, the the media, uh, media produced here, film reviews, et cetera, are read worldwide and have an effect on uh, how things are done in other countries. So, uh, you know, we, you know, it's read in Africa, it's read in Asia, it's read in Europe, read in the Middle East. So, you know, it's kind of a global, it's a global city, where the content is consumed by a global audience. So there should be more diversity, 100%, in New York City organizations that create media. That's my argument. I'm sure someone else could say otherwise. Yeah. All right. Well, let's talk about contempt, because that's ostensibly <laughs> what we go. came here to talk about. Yeah. Um, Good segue over to another, uh, another difficult uh, subject. Well, let's start with that. Why is it a difficult subject? Is it because we disagree on the movie? Uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't know if we disagree. Hopefully my cough is getting better and you'll have to edit out less. But <laughs> to wrap up the diversity in film criticism, 
Obviously, there were no black people in contempt. Just to, to be no, sure, no, no. there were no no, no no minorities in contempt. No, that's a separate issue. <laughs> uh, contempt doesn't doesn't necessarily need to have uh, diversity. Uh, what? Sorry. Yeah, that's a separate issue. It's not a group that represents a city. So um, the French. Yeah, the movie is not a group that represents a city. But to wrap up the film criticism uh, subject, I think we're on the same page. We both uh, think it's a good idea to have uh, diverse membership in uh, film critics groups that represent a city because you're, you agree with what the Chicago critics are doing, right? I agree it's a good goal. I good. don't agree with quotas. Uh, quotas are fine to get to a point. Um, anyway. I, I, I disagree. I okay. mean, I think, I think at one point, like with things like affirmative action, you know, coming off of civil rights, that was fine. Um, I think we're in a different time. I think there are better ways to get there. Um, but yeah, I, I, I oppose quotas. Well, I mean, quotas for quotas favoring white people has been in place for decades. Hiring mostly white people for film criticism, for example. Well, that, that's not that's not a quota. That's that's how things have shaken out. There's not been any board that I'm aware of that says we need to have X number of white people on our, you know, that's, if you say we have mostly white film critics, we need to have, you know, a black film critic and an Asian film critic and a, a Latin film critic, then that's a matter of quota. Having a bunch of white people, you know, on a board, that's not a quota. That's just, you know, a reality. And it's a no, sad that's just racism. That's, that's a kind of a quota. That's saying, well, and that's not necessarily racism because if we get back to no, because it depends, it depends on the context. Because what we're because that would imply that every newspaper, you know, in the country that has, you know, three white film critics who might have been, you know, legacy film critics say that they are actively racist. And I just don't think that's the case necessarily. Well, people, uh, conservatives don't think racism exists, but it does. So, well, no, conservatives think that racism exists. They just think of it in a different context. That's all. So, I mean, historically, what has happened is these newspapers have not hired minor, ethnic minority writers. They've hired mostly white writers or white looking writers. I mean, some people identify as something else, not necessarily a European you know, identity. Um, but, yeah, I mean, that is from decades of racism in the U.S., but again, I'm not talking about historically. I'm talking about right now, but like a newspaper, a, new, a newspaper that happens to have, you know, let's say three film critic positions. And but it's, film not, critic it's positions, not a natural formation. It's not happens to have. It's because the newspaper at some point made a decision to hire X number of white writers. They decided to hire X number of writers. White writers. Now, no, X number of sure. writers. We why is have it, to why is know. It? We would have to know. How many, you know, again, black and minority ethnic writers applied for those positions? Yeah, this is well documented. Why they were turned down. You're denying the racism. I'm not, I'm not denying racism or the history of... Completely. You know, You're 100% denying how things were done in the U.S. Look at the Mad Men era, right? I'm you not talking about it. I'm talking about contemporary, the contemporary situation... With film it's related to the historical situation. Contem how things are now are a result of decisions made or in earlier times. They they can be, but they're not necessarily. Let's say let's say there was a 
you know, a publication in New York mm-hmm. that was started 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And they have three or five film critics and they are all white. Mm-hmm. Is that directly a result of things that happened, you know, pre-civil rights era? Could be. Could because, be. Yeah, because if, if you look at certain fields of activity, such as filmmaking, and this and film criticism is related to that. If filmmaking was only hiring Hollywood, mainstream filmmaking was only hiring white looking people that could affect what kind of people are hired to cover Hollywood. I mean, it could, but I mean, let's look at contemporary Hollywood, you know, to They're use trying logic, to diversify. To, well, to, no, it's completely diversified now. No, I don't mean, know if it's completely have, diversified. Look, the, the mainstream large marquee Hollywood actors are largely a thing of the past. Now that's par- partially because of things like streaming and, you know, I'll say diversified, you know, uh, channels of media, you know, yeah, entertainment. But I mean, you look at, you know, the, uh, you know, you look at the movies that are being made today, the marquee names, you know, they are putting, you know, non-white people out in front as a selling point for a lot of these things. And you look at the entertainment shows, who's on the red carpets, who's interviewing people on the red carpets. For the last I mean, five seemed, years or so. Oh, it's been, it's been going on for a lot longer than that. It's been at least the last decade. And so we we'll have to look at the actual numbers. Okay, you can just go back and look at you know television from 15 years ago or movies. And no, we have to look at the actual numbers. Okay, you like go percent? do that and look at look at the number of sitcoms today that are you know in the last you know 10 years. I mean, at the last like mainstream, I think like prim- primarily white led sitcom that I can think of was probably Modern Family. And that was like, you know, 13 years ago. You look at things like Abbott Elementary, you look at, you know, Fresh Off the Boat, uh, you know, you look at all the people who, well, okay, I guess that Tim Allen sitcom that was on Fox is probably an exception, but that was almost like a a rebuke, (laughs) I think, to a lot of the diversity in sitcoms. But um, yeah, yeah, that's the thing. HBO shows, Netflix shows, there's lots of different uh, producers of content that kind right. of content now, not just yeah. the free TV. Right. So we'll have to look at the numbers. I mean, last time I read about this, like, you know, a couple, you know, <clears throat> a few months ago as to what percentage, uh, what's the diversity numbers wise in Hollywood actors it was changing for the better, but I don't, it's not a complete, it's not like, you know, 50% minority, 50% white. It was something like, you know, 30, 70 or something like that, but I'll have to take a look. But it is would, changing the in the uh in the more in the more diversification direction. I mean, it should have been like that from the beginning. It wasn't because well, of the yeah, but we can't do the shoulda, woulda, coulda because you know of course you can. Out. I mean, no, history is linked to the past. History, history is complicated, messy, and terrible. And there's been all we it's can do is look at past. look at yes, it is, but it's not beholden to the past all we can do is progress is. in better i mean i would say i'm trying to think of give me some contemporary examples of things that have that are not in the process at least of changing to right historical wrongs uh i'll have to take a look but uh hollywood is saying that they are changing and there seems to be some progress yes 
So yeah, so we agree, but that all that, the, this present situation is directly tied to what's happened in the previous decades. In a matter of correcting it. Right, but directly tied to it, right? I mean, yeah, but I mean, the, 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 way you've been talking, the way you've been talking about directly tied to it is to say that things were messed up then and they're still messed up now because they were messed up then. Yes, because decisions made in the past, I mean, we can look at the wealth gap in, in America, right? Because uh, Black people could not own property for a long time, some white families or the majority of white families benefited from government programs, blah, blah, blah. So the wealth among uh, white families, also recent immigrant Asian families, is way higher than black families. So well, sure, but experts you've also have looked that, at it. Right, but if you look at numbers now, Indian and Asian families are wealthier than white families. Yes, because... African-Americans struggled for equality and economic equality, which led to Asian quotas being dropped because there were quotas on Asian immigration. Um, so after that, the people who, Asians who came here were, you know, educated, professional driven, uh, they're from a, they're from the middle class of the Asian countries. Except, I mean, they're you know, they're refugees. They are illegal immigration from Asia. Also, there's you know poor people coming here without you know a lot of uh, connections and historical you know drive to achieve. Uh, so there's a small number of Asians. Uh, I mean, Asian populations maybe what ten percent of the U.S. Do you recall? Uh, not off the top of my head. All right. Why don't you know the Asian what? numbers, Ian? Hmm? Why don't you know the Asian numbers? I mean, I frankly don't care. But... <laughs> yeah. Well, the, if you don't care, then there's no no need to talk about well, it. No, I mean, I just don't I don't care about the actual, like, numbers. I mean, I know the kind of broad strokes, make... but, I mean, if you're talking like, okay, Blacks are 13% and Asians are 10% and, right. you know, getting into those numbers. I mean, it's just not something I tend to bother myself with because I've got other things on my mind. Yeah, well, well, the wealth gap is looked at, you know, the, the these three groups, Asians, white people, Europeans, black people, uh, in the history of the U.S. have had different paths getting to the present, right? Because of that, there's <coughs> there are wealth gaps. And, the you know, and what, what a lot of experts say is that the wealth gap is largely created due to slavery, segregation and lack of reforms uh, that have affected African-American families. I mean, it's a huge wealth gap. It's like, uh, you know, you know, something like 20,000 for African-American family versus 100,000 for white or Asian families. So, uh, I mean, those are not the exact figures, but that, and that kind of scale, it's not like 10,000 and 12,000, you know, uh, you know, annual income. Uh, so yeah, so history 100% matters for certain subjects now trying to change it that's going to take a long time and it's good that people organizations and nations are taking steps to change it also this kind of thing uh, exists worldwide in some other countries far worse than in the u.s yeah classes who are settled into a certain place in society not wanting to expand and not wanting to share their wealth yeah i mean it's not it's not a uniquely american problem for sure all right let's go to contempt we'll come back to this on the next episode
<laughs> so let's spend 10 minutes talking about no um but uh okay so contempt is jean-luc godard's film from 1963 mm -hmm. uh starring i'm just gonna say uh brigitte bardot's ass i mean she's in this movie but godard i mean people say that tarantino has a foot fetish i do you know do you have any context for godard's fascination with yeah with he was Charles first Rump? to he was forced to put, uh, put in uh, the, uh, that opening scene in the bed. The producer, and all the other scenes that followed. <laughs> yeah, they wanted nudity featuring uh, uh, Bardot in the beginning, middle, and end. And Godard said, "I'll just do an interesting shot in, in the in the beginning." And you know, some got in towards the middle and end also, but not yeah, a little bit. But yeah, they wanted to exploit her as a as a visual attraction for the movie. To sell, help sell the movie to the public, it's I, it's a weird thing because she's sort of presented as this sex object, but I thought, and it's almost a shame because I think in some ways it could be seen to, you know, undermine or cause me to not expect much from her performance. But you know, I thought she gave a really strong performance in this story about a marriage between a former typist turned sort of kept woman to a former crime novelist turned reluctant screenwriter uh, who is called upon to help rewrite or punch up the film adaptation of Homer's Odyssey as directed by Fritz Lang. That's right. With an American film producer played by Jack Palance. This is the most bonkers premise I think I've ever seen, which leads to what I would consider... <coughs> I only watched the movie between yesterday and this morning, so I've only seen it the one time. One of the most boring, circular movies I've seen in a long time mm -hmm. that I think completely pays off thematically in the end so to the point where I can watch this again. And I think it's kind of like the usual suspects. You know, it all comes together in <laughs> the end of the montage and everything else kind of falls into place. If you go back and rewatch the movie, mm -hmm. I feel that way about contempt. I think it's... I think it's brilliant. Yeah, it <clears throat> it gets better towards the end. I thought I was bored by it uh, in the beginning. I had to restart several times, shut down <laughs> other things, come back the next day. <clears throat> Overall, I'm not a big fan of the movie, but visually it looks nice. There's some interesting visuals happening. The camera being so away from the action, I don't think really served the story well. I mean, in Breathless that we talked about a few months ago, recently uh the the mix of shots <coughs> close-ups mediums you know wide shots that kept things going and gave it a you know a little bit of energy um <coughs> well i think you know when people talk about godard i think they kind of lump in and rightly or wrongly with this idea of kind of french artistic filmmakers and everything is probably about like symbolism and and all that jazz this is a movie i think could rightly be tagged with that label as there's a lot of visual symbolism going on. So to your point, like the opening scene, I think is very close and very sensual, you know, especially not only just because the camera is like fetishistically mm -hmm. going up and down Bardot's body, but it's because uh, her character Camille is in bed with Paul, her lover. And that's the last time that they are really connecting with each other. The idea of the removed camera later on speaks to 
the lack of intimacy, the lack of closeness in their relationship mm -hmm. that we're kind of watching fall apart. My issue throughout the film of this circular dialogue, you know, uh, I don't know if you love me anymore. I don't know if I love you anymore. What happened, you know, before I showed up when you were talking to that film producer? Uh, you don't want to know. Yes, I want to know what happened. I don't want to talk about it. Like all this stuff is kind of maddening. Yeah. Um, and then at the end, you come to realize what all of that means for their relationship. Now, I'm not endorsing, you know, what happens to their relationship, but it does have an internal logic that though it's hard to get through, it's the best, I think, way of showing the strain and the boredom of their relationship without just coming out and spelling it out all in text. Yeah, I mean, my problem was it wasn't entertaining, the movie. It's visually interesting. There's some, you know, creative interest, you know, creatively interesting things in there. The characters were not very likable. So I was just in the mood for entertainment when I watched it. And it was it was between uh, watching uh, Breathless, no, watching uh, Contempt versus watching Vikings Valhalla season two. So... <laughs> So, so when I was in the middle of, uh, so I think I did end up watching Vikings Well Hell season two in between starting and finishing Contempt. That must have been a wild experience. <laughs> uh, Vikings Well Hell season two uh, on Netflix is much more entertaining than Contempt, but I can see why people are some people are into Contempt. Um, <clears throat> I heard. Godard was forced to shoot on CinemaScope also. Like well, it's, it, the producers may you know wanted him to shoot on CinemaScope. It wasn't necessarily his first choice. Well, it's it's an odd decision because for you know, at the beginning of the film, there's that great kind of tracking shot of a film being made of a, mm -hmm. the assistant kind of walking, I think, reading a script or something as she's going to. Uh, the screening room, I might have that mixed up, but it definitely opens with a tracking shot. Like, hey, this is a movie about people making movies, and then they turn the camera so that it's facing. Yeah, that's a good, good way to good way to start the movie. Right, and, and in addition, I mean, I had the subtitles on, but there was a voice actually reading the credits of mm -hmm. the film, which mm -hmm. which I've never seen before, just kind of announcing everything. But it's weird because the subtitles were on. But I imagine in French there wouldn't be any text in the film because I'd be watching it in the native language. There were no there were no actual visual titles on the movie except for the 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 name the the title card. But mm -hmm. then when they're doing the credits like starring Brigitte Bardot and Fritz Lang, that was all spoken. There was no credits on the screen. So yeah. it's kind of inviting us into this weird immersive world where we are participating in and eventually become the subject of the film. Because I think when that camera turns to us, it's almost like inviting us to examine our own relationships with the movies and with each other. Yeah, that, that that's a common thing in a lot of Godard movies. The you know examining the filmmaking process, examining the reflexivity, examining uh, the audience relationship to filmmaking. Film uh, he constantly reminds people it's a movie that you're watching, so sort of a deconstructed filmmaking. <laughs> and this was. Uh, Right. This is a couple of years after Breathless. Yeah. You know, we spend a good much like in Breathless, we there's an extended, I mean, this do this movie takes it to an extreme, but there's an extended scene in an apartment between our two troubled lovers. And I noticed that you know, one thing that I remarked when we were talking about Breathless 
was that great kind of apartment shot. Right. Uh, it was a really cool looking apartment where you're kind of going around pillars and, and walking and talking with the characters. He yep. does that again here. Mm -hmm. It's a lot more laconic. You know, you almost don't realize that you're going around the apartment for the fifth time until you just you start to notice it because the characters are doing different things. There's also you can see a back bedroom that has like paintings and, and ladders and stuff. It's sort of in progress, I think. If I, yeah. I think that might have been something from Breathless as well. So there's some sort of motif there. Um, nice looking apartments. Uh, I mean, nice looking buildings and apartments in this movie. Yeah. And then, but getting back to the CinemaScope thing, you know, at the end, when they actually go to the set of, you know, in Capri where they're filming or the location in Capri where they're filming this bizarre Odyssey movie, mm -hmm. it opens up and it's really, truly gorgeous. There's some spectacular mm -hmm. set pieces. I would not have even thought to imagine possible in this story watching mm -hmm. these kind of dull apartment scenes. That uh, ending scene is nice. I mean, the last few minutes of the movie are interesting. I I would put the uh, gas station and the <laughs> car accident scene at the start of the movie and then have the rest of the movie. And I would end the movie with the, you know, the bedroom scene where Bardot is naked. Uh, like a memory of a pleasant times, you know, but uh, you know that's that's what I would recommend to Godard if I were back in that time before the movie. Now, why would you do that? Is that just to hook the audience with something exciting to let them know there is possible to see something in this movie, or or maybe to signal this is the last time you'll be awake for the next hour and a half? <laughs> Both plus, <laughs> I, you know, I kind of like the American producer character because. While the other two characters are indecisive, he's trying to get something big done, right? He's kind of a weirdo character, but he has a sort of a positive, large aim. And it could also be cultural because, you know, I'm used to American culture and I'm used to filmmaking. That's the kind of producer you want who's got ambitions. Not, the, not using his power to hook up with someone's wife, but not that part. But... Uh, it would I be, think it'd be, it'd be weird to have a character like that who didn't try to hook up with... That's right, you know, yeah. especially in 1963. And especially with Brigitte Bardot. That's right. Um, um, <clears throat> also, it would, I think, uh, seeing them dead would make us more sympathetic towards the characters, and uh, maybe we would have more sympathy towards, uh, you know, what they did while they were alive. And I think that's that's exactly why I think it belongs at the end, because... I don't think you're meant to have sympathy right. for any of these characters. And I think the understanding of what it means that they did get together, you you're, you hit the nail on the head with um, Jeremy Prokosh is the name of Jack Palance's character, who is so uh, ridiculous. Like he's just got some great lines. Uh, I wrote one of them down. This is going to stand out. Oh, da, 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 da. oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> They go to see um, a stage show where mm -hmm. they're kind of looking for, there's a, a young woman that is rumored to be, you know, a, a classic beauty who's going to be performing in this show. So they all go to watch her perform. And at one point, um, Jack Palance says, are they going to undress? And then I think the assistant said, yes, of course. And Jack Palance says, movies are great. <laughs> 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 he just says that he's just so unaware of what a jackass he is because he doesn't care. Right. He also says at one point when he's talking about script notes, he says, you know, I read the Odyssey again last night. I'm like, 
no. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but the thing is, the the reason that that opening bedroom scene I think belongs there and is shot the way that it does that last moment of intimacy between Camille and Paul is because she gradually loses all respect for the man she's with. And it's when she meets this Jeremy Prokosh character and he drives her you know, back to the villa on their first meeting and Paul decides to walk alone. And there's sort of a big mystery of like, what happened? Did he put the moves on or was there some kind of inappropriate thing? I don't think that's the case. I think that she just kind of fell for him in that moment. And then she was forced to go back to her apartment with her loser husband slash boyfriend, whatever he was, and just everything about him that was indecisive, kind of cowardly, complainy, just came out. And to your point, everything that Jeremy Prokosh was not was attracting her. Mm -hmm. So at the end of the film, he you know, Paul suspects infidelity. He's eventually proven right. And she, you know, leaves him, you know, in the dust. Yeah, now, I think cosmically, they the two Prokosh and Camille end up in that terrible car accident, which is not, you know, cosmic justice or anything. It's just sort of this idea that, you know, people make choices in life and she might have thought she was getting the better deal, but it ended up, you know, this this jackass careening out in the middle <laughs> into traffic in front of a, a tanker truck. Yeah. Um this movie is a good argument for you know, married women in the 60s having their own sources of funding because hey, uh, she was a typist. No. Yeah. Right. And <laughs> the 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 other thing was that uh this that character who's a typist, she could probably get some work modeling or acting. Right. <laughs> and and I think that you know that was that was probably another reason that she was attracted to Prokash. We don't I don't think we sure. see this deliberately, but you kind of sense that he's got his eye on her, like, hey, right. she could be my girlfriend and I'm a producer. I could put her in a movie and sell, you know, a billion tickets. Mm -hmm. And uh, I wonder if this was the situation with, uh, I think, Godard at that point or soon, yeah, I think around that point, Godard was uh, married to Anna Karunina. Uh, is that her name? Anna Karunina, right? That was, that was a... I think that was a Russian novel, wasn't it? No, no, there's an actress. Who is Godard married to? Anyway, some famous good-looking <laughs> actress. And uh, and I think, uh, I wonder if this was uh, <clears throat> some of the real, real world, world stuff that he was going through. Hmm. Um, possibly. I mean, that's the thing, is it definitely felt like him as a filmmaker was working some stuff out. I thought it was... I don't know. Do you know what uh, Godard's relationship or, I guess, feelings towards Fritz Lang was? Because it's an odd thing to have like a real world, you know, director figure play a version of himself in a movie that's not really just a cameo. Yeah, Anna Karina, and she was a beautiful model actress. I was thinking of Anna Karenina. The, the yeah, yeah. Book. So was yeah. I. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Anna Karina, uh, beautiful model actress who was Godard. For from 1961 to 1967, so <clears throat> and Godard, uh, you know that um, Sunrati character maybe uh, is a little bit of Godard, and also the producer character might also be a little bit of Godard. Where does Fritz Lang fall into this, though? <laughs> oh, Fritz Lang. I think I think he liked Fritz Lang, and that's why he's in there. And he's that character is treated pretty well. 
Yeah, I mean, and and it's weird because he is just, and this might just have been because of his position as you know already at that point an established important filmmaker. Mm-hmm. He really is just all about making the movie. Right. Paul's worried about you know I don't know if I want to do this. I don't want to do this movie, but there's good money in it. I don't believe mm-hmm. in it. I, I miss being a crime novelist. Uh, you know, Jack Palance's Prokosh character. Is just he's got a lot of money on the line. He doesn't know if what he's got is going to do anything. Like all these people are sort of tangentially related, have a have a stake in the movie business. Mm-hmm. But Fritz Lang is just he's the artist who's just I'm about the work. Like that's right. Get me the location. I'm going to watch this. I'm going to shoot this. I'm watching the dailies. You guys bicker about whatever you do. I'm I'm concentrating on my craft. Yeah, that's part of the argument. I mean, as the screenwriter said towards the end explicitly. Why must filmmaking be about money? And I think that was one of the complaints uh, Godard has had for a long time. Eventually, he figured out how to work outside of big money, which was to have his own gear, have his own gear, start using video, and he did that for uh, for much of rest of his life after starting in the seventies, and then starting then again starting in the two thousands. Yeah. Now, what? Goodbye to language. Farewell to language. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, we we talked about that, and I, I was. And he's made a bunch of other video movies. Uh, 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 Roger Ebert uh, Ebert's review of uh, Contempt said this was a movie where Godard tried big budget filmmaking and learned he's not good at it, or it's not the thing he wants to do. So he stopped doing it, and he went to making small art house political movies using, uh, you know, that require far resources. <laughs> and he's made like, and during his life, he made like 130 works. So, uh, you know, he found a way to keep busy. Well, it's weird to think because Alphaville came out, you know, two years after this movie. And it's mm-hmm. weird to think that that was sort of the the pared down version of him trying to, to make a commercial film. Because I think that's a... You know, I, I love Alphaville. I think it's a tremendously imaginative and you know well put together movie. It looks pretty slick for its time. Yeah. Also, that was just creativity over budget. I think it was a low budget movie. It's just he was very creative in bringing it together and shooting at real locations at night. Yeah, I guess that's that's the thing. Is like it, when it comes to the story and and your vision, because I don't watch, but I've only watched Alphaville once when we discussed it. But yeah, I don't think of that as a low budget movie. Right. And, and it's weird because go ahead. Oh, Alphaville is much more exciting to me than uh, than uh, Contempt. Oh yeah, I mean they're they're two. Different. Here's the thing: like, I I will acknowledge that if I were to go back and watch Contempt again, I can't guarantee that I wouldn't be bored for like forty minutes of it. I was much. bored, <laughs> but I also think it's one of those w- rare instances where that's supposed to be kind of the point. Like right. Godard wants to get across the fact that this merit this relationship has been dying for a while with you know, these kind of hit, these bursts of romance like we see in the beginning of it. But these people have become so bored with each other and themselves because they're trapped in this relationship that the only way to really show that without, you know, I'm bored, I'm trapped in this relationship, is to show that for like 40 minutes. That's right. I'm, I don't like the experience of it, but I admire the spirit. <laughs> it's certainly interesting filmmaking. The producers didn't get what they wanted, which was a commercial movie using a hot um, art house director 
and uh, a famous star using a new process, CinemaScope, you know. Uh, but they, you know, they ended up with a movie that's still being talked about. So maybe, maybe everyone got a little bit of what they wanted historically. Yes, unlike the characters in the movie itself. But yeah, uh... like uh, you guys are living in a very beautiful city, young, relatively young people in exciting careers. This guy's married to a hot model actress. What's all this, you know, focusing on negative stuff? If I were the uh, screenwriter, I'd be like, yeah, I have a hot actor, a hot, uh, hot wife. I would just, you know, try to make her happy and get my work done. You know, there's a version of that movie out there, but it's also five minutes long because it's That's like, right. where's the conflict? <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I mean, oh, everything's great instead of content. Yeah. That's right. No, uh, yeah, that's why I'm not Godard, I, and I I don't make Godard type movies. Um, Godard movies have a lot of unhappy people, he, and he he didn't make. I don't think he made any comedies. Well, but I would say there's probably comedic elements in here. Like I I thought the Jack Palance character was yeah. was hilarious, and I would have watched an entire spinoff movie of just him yeah. being this kind of clueless right. buffoon. Yeah, yeah, he's funny. Uh, yeah, I mean, but I mean, there these are not feel-good movies that I would take a date to, you know, if I'm taking a date to watch a movie, you know? Uh, these are like, you know, watch it, watch the movie by yourself, think about the concepts. Think about, I mean, he's definitely an art house director. Um, I think all his life, I can't think of anything he did. Maybe Breathless and Alphaville, those, are, those could be semi-mainstream movies. Yeah. Well, I'm okay. glad I watched... I'm, get, I'm getting you into uh, Godard. So in 10 years, when you're the Godard expert of Chicago and everyone's <laughs> annoyed by it, they can blame me. Hey, I'll take it. I actually, it's weird because I actually bought this movie on Amazon. Awesome. Uh, because it was like, I, I could rent it for $3 or I could own it for $3.50. I'm like, I, rene I renewed my Criterion uh, membership today. So I could hear the difference in audio between Criterion and Amazon. I watch it on Amazon. I, the audio really? on Criterion is better. Okay, I, it, it sounded fine to me. I was just it like did. listening to it on my laptop, right? So, um, but it just might be yeah, the compression. yeah, it just might be the compression. Yeah, I, that's the thing. Is like when I was watching it in the middle of one of their endless, you know, relationship conversations, I was thinking. I kind of wasted 50 cents. I could have just rented this. I'm never going to go back to it. But then by the end of it, I was thinking, I'm glad I bought this movie because now on a whim, I can just go back and revisit Contempt and see if I feel differently about it now that I know where everything, how it all flushes out rather than just being stuck in the middle of like, I don't know if this is going anywhere. Oh, uh, if, since you're getting into Godard, Criterion for $11 a month, they have, they have about 30 or more of his movies. So uh, uh, today, today I just jumped around from various movies and sampled. There's a lot of Godard movies I haven't seen. Uh, and it's, it's always tempting, but like with all of these different damn streaming services, right? you know, like HBO Max, I've got a trial from Black Friday where there's like, you know, three months for $2 a month and it's been great. Right. But at the end of next month, I'm going to have to say, is this really worth 12 bucks or whatever? I, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I activate and deactivate like 10 different services every few months. That's the way to go. That's right. But anyway, I think I'm going to deactivate this conversation sure. unless there's anything else that you want to talk about regarding contempt. 
Well, overall, I would say this show has a lot of good, good amount of diversity. No one can like no one can complain about that. So learn from this show, NYC, no NYFCC, and uh, no, I'm excited about the next movie, No Bears, which uh, hopefully you'll get to watch uh, yeah. at, at a movie theater, and that'll be a fun movie to discuss. I don't think we we've, we've covered any Jafar. Panahi movies so far. Um, so yeah, Iranian, New Wave, and modern filmmaker who's in jail now. So um, in jail? Yeah, he's in Is jail. Is this a, like a political prisoner situation? Political, or you yeah, kill yeah, somebody. Yeah, the gov- okay. The government banned him from making movies like 10 years ago. And Wait he's- a minute. Did was there and he's I don't know if it's the same filmmaker? Was there a thing where he was gonna try trying to get to the Oscars uh some years ago or that's another that's another filmmaker the Iranian government was messing with. The okay. Iranian government doesn't like a lot of their filmmakers, even though they're popular in the West or known in the known and liked in the West, and they could be a revenue stream, blah blah blah. But you know, backwards conservative government. So um, yeah, Jafar Panahi was banned from filmmaking a few <laughs> years ago. His sentence was suspended. <clears throat> then he made some movies secretly. Then he questioned the government because the government jailed some of his filmmaker buddies. And they activated the sentence. Now he's in actual prison. The, and no, so this was one of the he made this film when his uh, when his, his sentence was lifted. Is that or temporary? No, before it was it was suspended. Before it was activated as a real sentence. This was the last movie he made before he was thrown. He was thrown in jail. Right, but it, I'm, I'm saying it. there was that that got that kind of period where he was able to make movies and he wasn't allowed to he secretly did it oh he secretly this is one of the secret films wow yeah okay. this, he did like four movies in secret and they were smuggled out of iran are they all available now or are they are they're they all just... available now you just okay. just google jafar panahi and uh, i think uh various sites criterion and a bunch of other sites will have them wow well but, that, uh, that's that's very exciting um i think i, I want to say this is going to be the first or at least the first in a while, contemporary film discussion we've had. Like we're going to talk about something that people could go out and see. That's in right. The movie theater. Yeah. Oh, and cool. and because this episode comes out earlier, uh, <coughs> No Bears already in New York. It's coming to Chicago. Uh, I think January twentieth. Yeah, it's coming out very soon here. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So go check it out, everyone. Good movie. It rekindles your faith in indie low budget filmmaking. It's, uh, I'd like to say it's the micro-budget Iranian version of Pulp Fiction. Oh, nice. <laughs> and also, disclaimer, not to be confused with the movie that's going to be opening wide around the same time, Cocaine Bear. Yes. We're not talking about Cocaine Bears. <laughs> yeah, I'd like to see Cocaine Bear also. Maybe we'll discuss it. That could be a micro-episode. That's right. Yeah. All, All right. right. Time to go get dinner. Good discussion. We'll Wait, continue dinner. on all subjects. Next month, uh, send me the invite, and as soon as the movie is done, I'll send you the link for Cosmic Disco Detective Renee, the first in 50 movies starting that character. <laughs> Excellent. I love it, man. Thank All you right. so much. It's been a great talk, and uh, yeah, we'll catch you next month. Talk to you soon. Thank you. All right. Bye.